Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Welcome to Pantsuit Politics, where a woman from the right and a woman from the left accessorize the news with a fresh perspective. This is Sarah Holland from the left and Beth Silvers from the right. And welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We're very excited to announce that we've completely revamped our emails that are going to start going out with each new episode, including our latest feature, the Friday Briefcase. So if you're interested in knowing the latest going-ons with both Beth and I, and also some unique content, and getting each new episode delivered directly to your inbox, please come sign up at our website, and we'll also put links to sign up on our Facebook page and Twitter feeds. So sign up for our email list. And as always, we want to 
with a lot of uh, gentility, ask you to rate us on iTunes so that other people can find Pantsuit Politics. We are just short of 100 ratings right now, and we really appreciate everyone who's taken time to do that. Also, follow us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic. No S, because Twitter has cut us <laughs> off there. Um, and definitely follow us on Twitter this week, because we'll be live tweeting uh, State of the Union, as well as the Republican debate. So good time to be on Twitter. And uh, you can find us on Facebook at Pantsuit politics as well there's also a chance we could share some thoughts on the golden globes tonight let's just be honest (laughs) we like to keep it varied as well as nuanced that's exactly right so this week in the pearls we have a lot to talk about because like we just said the state of the union and the republican debates coming up so the state of the union is tuesday evening the republican debate is thursday and sarah uh, we thought we'd just kind of start out with some things to be watching for So what are your thoughts on the State of the Union generally? Well, not surprisingly, because I'm a fan of President Obama. I'm a fan of confident and yes, I will I will even give, you know, the people saying he's a little bit self-congratulatory a small amount of credit. But it doesn't bother me because I like him. So I don't mind it when he's self-congratulatory. I really like overly confident. Although I'll tell you what. With the latest jobs numbers, I'm not really sure overly confident is accurate. I think plain old confident is, confidence is in order. So I'm sure we're going to see a lot of that in the State of the Union. Yeah, the White House has done a little bit of a preview and have described an optimistic tone. Um, <laughs> which, you know, I, I mean, I'm very happy to see some of these economic changes happening. I think he has to be careful because when you dig into the numbers, those changes there are still a lot of people not feeling that optimism, right. um, especially when you look at wage compression issues. But, but I mean, certainly he has things to speak about, um, particularly with respect to the auto industry. You know, auto sales are up 9% this year. That is much better than I think anyone would have predicted when the federal government bailed out the auto industry. Um, I'm sure he will tout his climate change um, initiatives, some of the trade issues going on. I mean, he definitely has things to say about how he has advanced his agenda to this point. I guess what I wonder is what's what's the vision from here for him? Because he's not going to want to get into what's on a lot of voters' minds, which is national security, right? Mm-hmm. So where does he go? Well, I think that he's limited. We all know he's limited. So I don't think he can come out and give this great broad vision for the future of America. It's not, And also, it's not his role right now. I mean, he has people from his party running for president. So I think he's going to do what he needs to do, which is kind of list his successes, say, I'm not going to sit back. I'm still president. We still have things to accomplish. And really, you know, lay out the vision of the party, maybe less than his particular presidency. Yeah, I'm interested to see if he can do that because I don't think he's a party guy. Oh, I don't think that's true. I don't I think don't. that's true. I think I th- he is. I think he'll support the Democratic Party, of course. Um, but, I mean, I think he's a guy who is very – and I don't say this with a whole lot of criticism. I think most people who seek the presidency are like this. But I think he's a lot about his own – legacy, his own accomplishments. Do you think that he's sitting around really excited about Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders? I I don't. Oh, I do. I think because if you're president, then your legacy is 
in real danger if somebody from the opposing party comes in next. So, and he, listen, I have always thought that him and Hillary share more than they don't share. They're both pragmatist at the end of the day and he gives a better speech, but they're both really about what can we get accomplished to a certain extent. And so I think that, and they worked really well when she was secretary of state. So I'm sure he's rooting for her. Although I'm, I don't know. I don't know what his relationship is with Bernie Sanders, but, um, and she probably won't, wouldn't appreciate being linked to him too much. See, I think that's where he comes off as maybe not a party guy is because sometimes the party doesn't want him, you know, in certain areas of the country, they don't want him around. Right. And that's not because he's saying I can't come. It's because they're saying, no, please don't come. Well, and that's going to be true for any president. So, so I see that. I, I don't know. I think it'll be interesting. Um, I, I'm really interesting to see, interested to see what, if anything, he has to say about national security. Um, because I do think that's going to be kind of the elephant in the room if he comes out with this sort of self-congratulatory tone that, that is in the preview. Um, I also wanted to ask you what you think about uh, the fact that the first lady's box will have this symbolic empty chair for victims of gun violence. I like it. I think it's a nice uh, symbolic gesture. And I think that it, especially on the heels of his executive action and his very emotional speech, sort of makes sure it, this issue doesn't fall off the table and stays in the public eye. I think it's a, a nice gesture. Yeah, I don't have strong feelings about it one way or the other. I don't know how it will play on television. I think his feelings on this are very clear. So it mm -hmm. doesn't seem like it doesn't seem cheap or anything to yeah. me. Yeah. Um, I, I know what the coverage will look like. It will be sort of what we talked about with our year end roundup. You know, you care about this, but not that. Right. So that's right. predictable and kind of tiresome. Um, I don't know. I, I think this is going to be a very, he would do well to keep this a very nuanced state of the union address, right? Because the, the country is in an interesting spot. Some things are going really well, but there is still a lot of uh, concern and fear. And then layer on that very tumultuous election. Mm -hmm. It'll be a good one. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. So what about the GOP debate? I know um, you thought Fox Business did a very good job with it last time. So how, are you feeling like this one will be good as well? Well, they're keeping the same moderators. And I did think the moderators handled the candidates pretty well. Um, it wasn't sort of the circus that some of the other debates have been. I, I felt like um, Neil Cavuto and Maria Bartoloma did a better job getting questions answered than, than has happened in some debates. I guess what I, if I could just like huddle with the governors for a second, because you know, I'm a governor girl. I know um, you are. I would like them to not use this as an opportunity to kill each other. Yeah. And I, I understand when you look at the numbers that there's an establishment pile up, right? Who mm -hmm. besides Donald Trump, who besides Ted Cruz, um, I don't think the way to exit that pile up is to take everyone in that layer down. I don't think John Kasich will engage in that as much. He seems to always use the debates as a forum to show that he's a uniter. Yeah. Um, I think Chris Christie will do it, but uh, with a little bit more charm mm -hmm. than the other guys. 
uh, maybe the one to watch here is Jeb Bush. And I would really love Jeb Bush to come out and have a moment where he seems presidential. I I just think it might be too late for that. And then Marco Rubio, you know, has been taking it from everybody. About those boots. (laughs) Very important issues here. (laughs) Yeah, the high-heeled boots. I mean, they're pretty snazzy boots. Who cares? He's a snazzy guy. I mean, he's a snazzy guy. He's a young, snazzy guy. But, I mean, I do remember the bad taste it left in my mouth when we had to watch John Edwards comb his hair for three and a half hours. So maybe that's sort of what it brings up for people. Although it feels very different than me than the John Edwards vanity. I I think that my overall sense on Marco Rubio, which doesn't have anything to do with his boots, but I guess could be consistent with them, is that he's he's just a little too polished. He's a mm-hmm. little too slick for me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we'll see how it goes for him. He is very good in debates. It, speaking of his age, does it not shock you that he and Ted Cruz are the same age? What? Is that right? Yes. I read that this week, that they're the same age. Really? I know. <laughs> I know. It's amazing. I also think it's amazing. Um, I was watching some of the Sunday shows and and seeing how many uh, establishment sort of strategists were out there kind of publicly admitting that they're coming around to the idea that, well, Trump might be better than Cruz for the party. Really? Do you think that? Do I personally think that? Yeah. Yes, I do. (gasps) Now, here's here's why. Um, I think, look, I do not want Donald Trump to be president, clearly. Um, I think that Donald Trump reads the audience always Mm -hmm. right so general election i think we'll see a whole different version of donald trump i think this wall discussion will be gone i think he will i think we'll all have like whiplash from seeing how hard he goes to the left if he comes out with the nomination well, Ted and th- Cruz it, is who he is. That's true. Well, and I think that the party will have an easier, I don't know, though. How do they distance themselves from their nominee? I mean, I guess if he goes off the wall and is all this flip-flopping. I mean, I guess no matter what Donald Trump does, I think it's an easier sell for the Republican Party to be like, okay, but he's not a Republican. I feel like that's an easier sell. You can't. I mean, with Ted Cruz, you can't really make that argument. Well, that's the thing, because I think if I think if Ted Cruz, I think either of them lose the general election. Mm-hmm. If Ted Cruz is the nominee and loses the general election, Ted Cruz doesn't go away. Yeah. Ted Cruz goes back to the United States Senate mm-hmm. as the party's nominee. I mean, the, you look at even Mitt Romney, who a lot of Republicans rejected in a, in a lot of ways. He is kind of senior statesman status at this point. Yeah. Nobody's going to have that from Ted Cruz. People in the Republican Party will not even say that Ted Cruz is eligible to run for president this week. (laughs) You know, they do not like him. No No one likes Ted Cruz. I have to mention here because one of our awesome listeners, Rachel, mentioned this, that, you know, Ted Cruz's college roommate has just been all anyone who will listen to him. He'll tell what a miserable human being Ted Cruz is. It totally supported to me our theory that Ted He's the white chocolate. Is, is the white chocolate. He's, the white chocolate. He's like white chocolate with orange, which is even worse. 
based on my stance of all opposition to fruit and chocolate mixing. It's like a white chocolate with something mixed in. That's not it's even good with chocolate. Good. I love that his roommate said something like 99% of the reason that I dislike him is because of his personality. So even if I agreed with him on every policy, I would only like him 1% more. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, and also I think what you have to talk about in consideration of this Trump Cruz thing, if his Cruz is the nominee, Donald Trump is totally still going to run. I don't Do believe him. So? Oh yeah, I don't believe him for a hot minute when he says he won't run as an independent candidate. You know he will. He doesn't care. He has no ethics. He has no with with regards to like doing what he says or following through. He does what he wants to do. If he wants to still run, he's going to run. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special. Makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Pantsuit.
I agree with all of that. I mean, what um, is it? What is it worth to him to not once he's not the nominee? I mean, what does he care if if he breaks his promise to the Republican Party? I mean, I, I don't understand. I don't see what it benefits him at all to keep that promise. I don't think it benefits him to keep that promise. What I think is he'll do a serious calculus of whether he is going to lose twice. Yeah, and he won't true. let himself be beaten twice. That's true. That's true. Unless he's so petty, which every account I've read is that he is. I mean, that stuff about his brother and not giving money for his brother's kid who has cerebral palsy. I mean, it's awful. It's some really petty, petty awfulness among his family history for him to just say, yeah, well, I might not win again, but at least I'll take them out. Maybe. I don't know. I, I cannot predict him at all. Yeah, my expectations or my sort of bottom of behavior for Donald Trump is there there is no bottom. And yet, I still think I would rather have him as the nominee than Ted Cruz. That's where we are. It's amazing. Oh, wow. Woo! That's painful. Well, so uh, the other person I want to talk about with respect to this GOP debate is Rand Paul, because he has been very publicly saying that we should eliminate this undercard debate idea now. How many people have dropped out since last time? Let's see. Pataki. Pataki. And Jindal. And Jindal. So that's down two. But you still have a lot left. It's a lot of people. Now, I wish more people would drop out. I mean, Santorum, you're done. Please, yeah, seriously. Please, Rick. Please. Huckabee, you can go. Huckabee, please. And and Huckabee, you know, I don't even want you to go back to Fox, Fox News. I just, I want you to, like, go find a porch somewhere and whittle and drink sweet tea or something. And I'm not saying that to be, like, ugly toward his southern roots. But, like, I just want Huckabee to um, quiet down because I feel like he even more effectively than Ted Cruz can speak to some of the ugliest aspects Mm -hmm. of the Republican base. It's just not my party, you know? So, you know, it's really, I was just thinking about how opposite a situation this was from the democratic party when we had so much competition. Cause I had so many conversations with people that were like, you know, even people like Obama bros who were totally making me so mad during that whole situation. It was still a com- it, I was never really mad at Obama, except for that one time when he said that likable comment, which I'm still bitter about. But, you know, it was still a, we have so many good choices. Like, no matter who wins, we'll have a great candidate. It's just so opposite. For, I mean, I guess this is another, this is a totally, a whole, whole other episode about what we think that means and how that makes you feel. But. Well, if we, if we were talking about a competition between Christy Rubio Kasich Bush I would have that feeling a little bit like we're yeah. gonna have a good nominee no matter what um unfortunately that's not what we're talking about right right but I I like Rand Paul's point of networks shouldn't have this much influence in who the voters hear from yeah that's true he always has he always has an interesting angle. You know, yeah. I'm glad he's in the race because he always has an interesting angle. I also just side note, really like his wife. I think she's a really good um, surrogate for him in a lot of ways. She's writing this book on influential women. You know, she's see. a Kentucky woman like us. I just I like her. Hmm. I don't know much about her. I'll have to look into that. So we wanted to just mention quickly some polls from New Hampshire that that show this thing tightening a little bit. Um, and also, and I, I know you're going to have strong feelings about this, Sarah, that Bernie is performing when you when you survey registered voters of both parties and no party in New Hampshire and Iowa, uh, you find that head to head matchups 
So Clinton or Sanders versus Trump, Clinton or Sanders versus Rubio, et cetera, that Sanders outperforms Clinton in those kind of hypothetical general election scenarios. I wonder what your comments are about that. I mean, I don't find that particularly surprising because he's from Vermont. And so the people of New Hampshire, I'm assuming, understand Bernie, get what Bernie's about, um, you know, have pretty strong likability. He's been, I mean, he's been senator from Vermont for a long time. Plenty of time for him to establish a reputation in surrounding states, especially when they're as small as the New England states are and close together. But so I, I don't really find that surprising. I thought she did really good kind of address you know, differentiating herself this morning on Face the Nation, P.S. we're recording this on Sunday, um, about Sanders and the gun control thing and how she was talking about, you know, he says he's a senator from New Hampshire and things are different, but the other senator from New Hampshire voted with President Obama and I against this legislation, and I thought she did a really good job. I mean, I think that I'm not going to bash Bernie Sanders. I like Bernie Sanders, but I just don't think he should be our nominee. And I don't think that this, you know, I just don't think that New Hampshire is, registered voter in New Hampshire is reflective of his overall nationwide electability. Well, and I think this is a good point to just remind everybody that at this point in 2004, um, Howard Dean was up by four points. I still like Howard Dean. I'm not even trying to lie. You know what? I like Howard Dean too. Yeah, I had a lot. And it's just so, is it not so crazy that in this election cycle where we're, dealing, where we're dealing with Donald Trump saying, oh, whatever he wants, that Dean got taken out by like a hearty yell. Really? Well, I don't understand how quickly things change. Certainly our expectations of decorum yeah. have changed. You think? <laughs> 2008, Hillary Clinton was up by seven. Huckabee was up by a point and a half at this point in 2008 and Mitt Romney was up by 10 in 2012 right now. So, you know, it's just polls are what they are. They're kind of interesting to reflect on, but uh, this time especially we'll see what the voters do. Now, I will say I had a stunning to me kind of revelation watching Meet the Press this morning. There was a reporter from Iowa there talking about the Trump teams on the ground, their efforts to get voters who are never caucus goers to go to the caucuses. Oh, wow. And she said they have this really kind of fun, simple presentation about how you engage in this process. And you know what I thought? This is basically a celebrity apprentice challenge. <laughs> it is. You know, this is something there's been all this skepticism that he can't convert, but he might do this real well. So we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. I still think whatever they're selling on celebrity apprentice is probably more fun and interesting than a caucus. Well, that could be true. And that's from somebody who likes politics. But he does have those hats, so I don't know. Well, we always take a minute before we move into our meteor discussion to compliment someone from the opposite side. So, Sarah, you're going to hearken back to, I think, someone we've already talked about today. Yeah, I'm going to compliment my own senator from Kentucky, Rand Paul, not the other one. Um, He won't be anything nice for me in in the near future. But Rand Paul, I really do... I have a lot of respect for him, and he's earned it, because I sure didn't have any when he was first elected. Um, and he's just earned it the old-fashioned way, by saying things I agree with and sticking to his principles. And um, I think that we're about to, in the next segment, talk about criminal justice reform, and he's been very outspoken on that and earned a lot of my respect that way. So hats off to you, Rand Paul. My uh, compliment goes to Bill Clinton, similarly tied to our next segment, Um 
Bill Clinton, I think, has done one of the hardest things for any politician, but particularly a former president and someone who, let's face it, just has the ego of Bill Clinton. And again, not disparaging. You need to have ego to be the president. Um, But he has been very outspoken recently in admitting that the Clinton era uh, tough on crime policies have contributed to the situation in which we find ourselves today that we all agree is unacceptable. And I think that's a big deal for somebody to come out and say, I did what I thought was right at the time, and I see now that that didn't go the way I wanted it to. I think that's hard. And I say, good job, Bill. Well, and especially when you're a president and you're talking about your legacy. We already, I mean, with Obama, that's a big deal. It's a very big deal. And I, I think it takes a ton of integrity. Here is a Republican putting Bill Clinton and integrity in the same sentence. Write it Mm -hmm. down. And I really, honestly, I don't think Bill Clinton gets enough credit for the personal journey that he has clearly taken since he's been president. I feel like this stuff comes up and all of a sudden everybody sees him just like he, when he was some, you know, 1970s about to be governor of Arkansas and this young guy, he's not that guy anymore. Who would, who would be after 40 plus years. I mean, he's been, he's gotten close to death. He's had open heart surgery. He has grandkids now. Like, can we not ascribe probably a little bit of personal growth to this man? Like, I'm sure he's very, he's a very different person than he was then. It's hard for me to imagine the toll that being president would take on you, particularly when you were president as young as he was and as young as President Obama has been. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, George W. Bush, too. I think you see a real evolution of it. How, right? how, could, it, how painting, could you not grow? Right. With the painting and the cats. I dig it. <laughs> All right. Well, in the seat, we are going to tackle criminal justice reform in greater depth. So we have had this on our list for a while, Beth, and then I watched Making a Murderer and got real fired up all over again and said, okay, we really have to, it's time to talk about criminal justice reform. I'm chomping at the bit. I'm about halfway through Making a Murderer, so um, I I get a little bit like, my husband wants to just binge watch it, and you know, I need some light and breezy moments in my entertainment <laughs> as well, That's so not I it. can't do that. There are no light and breezy moments in Making a Murderer. Not one. Nope. Not one. Not, you know, Serial even gave you a few moments where you could kind of laugh or at least reflect on some good in humanity. Yeah. None of that. No. Making a Murderer. Mm-mm. No, no. So this is a really great issue for us on Pantsuit Politics because in the last, I would say, a year and a half, it has become a truly bipartisan issue with both sides acknowledging that we have a huge problem that we have unfair sentencing laws that we have mass incarceration that is affecting communities and families and you know state budgets everything um and also before we move on from pop culture i think i like to think that orange is the new black has had a little bit of an impact on this discussion as well i think anytime you put something out in pop culture that says look This is not what we think it is. It really does. I think it moves the needle a little bit. I totally agree with that. I I mean, 
look, it's no wonder that we have kind of several cultural phenomenons coalescing that happens. Mm -hmm. You know, people get invested in something. You start to personal. Even if you had a guilty defendant, a clearly guilty defendant in every one of these situations, just humanizing even a guilty person Mm -hmm. is really important. Okay, so let's well let uh, let's talk about this through maybe the um, procedure in which someone encounters the process in which someone encounters the criminal justice, beginning with some very recent events with law enforcement. Obviously, in Ferguson, Chicago, Baltimore, really, this list is too long. First of it's all, there's way too long, way too many places we can list in which. Black people were gunned down or, at the very least, unfairly stopped. Now that there's new evidence, even in that, um, the one in Texas, now the, the, did you see this? The cop is being charged with perjury. Yes. With the woman who um, allegedly hung herself in the prison. So I think with regards to law enforcement, you know, I had somebody tell me, a few days ago, sometimes you seem anti-law enforcement and anti-medical establishment. And I said, well, I'm not anti-law enforcement, but I do think there's a common thread here in that we as a society handed over 100% trust to these institutions and said, take care of it. And I don't think that has led to positive results for anyone. And my argument is for law enforcement either. I don't think law and our law enforcement officials are safer when there is rampant mistrust for the institution. Um, and so I think that we've kind of done this, this assumed that they have complete knowledge and that they have always the right motivations. And that's not to say that, you know, it's always nefarious, but these are human beings. They are, these are human beings making up our law enforcement agencies, not superheroes. And I think we have to acknowledge that really to make it easier for them to do their jobs and for all of us to sort of step up in responsibility for this problem instead of just kind of offloading onto the institution. I agree with you. I don't think that it's, and we talked about this in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, I don't think it's anti-law enforcement to say, I want law enforcement to be better trained. Mm -hmm. Um, I want more mental health issues addressed in the law enforcement community. I want more unconscious bias education Mm -hmm. to take place. Um, And I say that in a a way that I see as very pro-law enforcement, too, because starting from everybody's doing their best, I cannot even imagine in the situations where It isn't just kind of obviously a bad actor. I can't imagine what you carry around with you Mm -hmm. for the rest of your life if you've been involved in ending another person's life unjustifiably. I just, um, you know, I, I was, I was in a car accident when I was 17 and a person in the other car died and, and it was a, it was not my fault. And, and the the weight of that is something it's completely changed my life. I I can't imagine having shot someone, Mm -hmm. you know, who I believed had a weapon and didn't or whatever. I, so, so I think it is pro law enforcement pro. We can all be on the same side here, right? Mm -hmm. We want our police to be equipped to face the challenges they face and equipped means more than having a loaded weapon on them. 
Well, and I think what you said is right, which is, you know, I'm a back to Brene Brown. I love the idea that people, you, you are doing your best, but perhaps in this situation, your best is dangerous or your best is biased or your best has repercussions that you can't see. And that doesn't mean that we're saying that you're going out looking for those consequences. What we're saying is, I think what we've done up until this point is say, look at police officers and, and say, do your best. And that's just not enough. There has to be systematic checks in place. There has to be protections in place. There has to be education in place. And that is good for everybody. And that is beneficial for everybody. And I think, you know, when I was in law school, I took this class in race, crime, and politics. And I literally did not know until I took this class that people got pulled over for other reasons besides speeding. Because that was my only experience with the criminal, with (laughs) with police, is they pulled you over because you were speeding. And all these people in my class, minorities, were like, no, white girl, we get pulled over for all kinds of reasons. And it was mind-blowing to me. And so I just think so often we're speaking about the criminal justice system out of our own experience. And that, even if you're a police officer, is not always indicative of what's happening. You know, that's still just one side. And we have to really think about the repercussions for all sides when we make these decisions. And I think that with regards to, you know, situations like serial and making a murder, I'm really hoping that people's eyes are opened up to the fact that, you know, probable cause is what it is. And it doesn't mean just because a police officer found probable cause that the person did it. And I think too often in our, in our society, we assume that, well, they wouldn't have charged you if you didn't do it. No, that's not how it works. And we can't act like it works like that either. You know, it's it's not enough just to be accused, and too often we act like it is. And that's so damaging, and it's so harmful, and, you know, it just it breaks my heart in a way. Because I can't – I have such a – you know, I can't – when somebody accuses me of something I didn't do, the few times it's happened in my life, it sends me over a cliff. So I cannot fathom what it must be like on the scale of even, you know, just being accused of a parking ticket or – a drug offense or whatever it is that you didn't do or that even if you did do it, the, the, the way the system works to address those issues isn't fair. Well, and that, that's the thread, I think, that humanity runs all the way through the system, you mm-hmm. know, that we trust the institutions as institutions, but they are all built on human beings. So judges, prosecutors, jurors, defense attorneys, we're all bringing every single bit of our personal baggage into this system. So when I was in law school, I heard a prosecutor, I think it was a prosecutor, speak about um, what he termed the CSI effect Mm. and how difficult it had become to get convictions without something like DNA evidence. And we matched these fibers to the perpetrator's coat and, and just sort of the whole thing that you see play out on TV. And I remember thinking, like, I don't so much have a problem with that. Yeah. I totally agree. At first, if they say that, and you're like, oh, that's ridiculous. And then you read more and more about false confessions and particularly eyewitness testimony. I can tell you right now, I probably would never get placed on a jury because I would say, I cannot in good conscience ever convict somebody on eyewitness testimony. I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't ethically do it. I think it is so flawed. You know, you hear, you know, case after case. I remember hearing um, the Ronald Cotton case in college. He was a black man identified by a white victim, a white rape victim as her rapist. She was convincing. She had memorized it. She goes on and on about how I memorized his face. And I 
went out of my way to keep track of what he looked like so I could identify him. And she got it wrong. And now these two people tour the country talking about the problems with eyewitness testimony, particularly cross-racial identification. But people just don't, you know, I think there's so much education that needs to be done on these issues because people think, no, they saw him. They did it. They, I did, they picked him out of a lineup. Like there are so many procedural problems with lineups and possible problems with lineups that even when the, the victim is really convinced themselves and convincing, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that person did it. And I, I think it's just, you know, that, that, uh, it just, I'm in my incredulous credulity how do you pronounce that word i got it wrong (laughs) well you know bringing our compassion to the table on this i think about this a lot with respect to the victims too Mm -hmm. victims and witnesses because can you imagine if you touched the adnan syed situation or the stephen avery situation even tangentially how much it brings up for you to have these stories uh, being digested by such large audiences. Mm-hmm. And ca- I cannot imagine having proffered testimony that convicted someone and having any seed of doubt in my mind about my own recollection of events. I mean, it's just, it. we're just, just like with our law enforcement, we're just asking so much That's, of people. It's so true. We really are. We've set the bar. So, and this poor woman in making a murderer, because I don't think I'm spoiling anything when it's it's in the synopsis that he is, he goes to prison for 18 years for a rape he didn't commit. And this poor woman identified him. And then she's like apologizing to him. He's like, don't worry about it. I mean, well, she's am- been made a victim twice. Yes, right? Absolutely. That's what's happened. Well, and not to mention that the person who actually did rape her went out and raped somebody else. So, you know, I think that I can't, fa- I think there's so many issues with regards to eyewitness testimony. I think, you know, False confessions are a thing that are really difficult to wrap your brain around if you haven't, if you don't know a lot about the issue or haven't read about the the issues. On the face of it, it seems like, why would anybody confess to a crime they didn't commit? But they do, and they do it all the time. And it's so difficult to think. And I think, you know what, that maybe is the issue with empathy and humanity. It's not just seeing the humanity in others, but acknowledging that you could make these mistakes too. I think that to put yourself in the place of these other human beings and to take a moment to think, I could do that. I could offer false testimony if I was, you know, thought I was doing the right thing and really thought I was identifying the right person. Just, I think, taking a moment to think that these aren't others, that this could be me. And I think that's really where that humanity aspect and empathy is not just thinking about the people themselves, but thinking to putting yourself in those people's shoes on all sides. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. 
Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Well, there are many, many factors that lead to false confessions, but one of them, I think, segues well into the next issue that we need to talk about, which is when you are in the situation of looking at a confession or not, you start to weigh outcomes. Um, you know, you start to say, what is the possible sentence? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I think the possible sentence starts to become relevant at the point you become accused. I think our whole system today, especially our drug laws, are predicated on the notion that the possible sentence weighs much earlier in the process. And I think it does not. I don't think anybody thinking about um, using heroin says, what's now? How many years could this yeah. be? But but then when you are acute, I, th I think their calculus is maybe at the most, will I get caught or not? Mm -hmm. Right. But the point when how long starts to become a factor might be when someone's pointing a finger in your direction, right? And then you start to go, well, if I cooperate, you know, even if I'm totally innocent, if I cooperate, it's this. If I don't, it's that. Do I want to roll the dice in that way? And so that's where I feel like we have just this 
enormous and complicated mess to undo. But we have, we have to get rid of this notion that we're going to dissuade anyone from committing crimes by the penalties that they could face down the road and taking away all discretion Mm -hmm. from judges and juries to impose those penalties. Well, and you know, that's always, I've been opposed to the death penalty since trains were you, did you happen to hear sister Helen Prejean when she came to transy? I think it was our freshman year. It really affected me. My entire, it affected my entire life. I will never forget her saying, talking about meaning. This is the the nun who was um, the inspiration for Dead Man Walking, the Susan Sarandon film. And she talks about meeting these men and them not telling her why they're, she's, they're in prison. And she said, and I thought, would I sit down with somebody I just met and tell them the worst thing I ever did? And I thought, oh, my God, that's so true. We turn these people into one act. We turn human beings into monsters. And the sum composite of their entire lives are the worst thing they ever did. And I think... So much of this discussion has to be a fundamental changing and a fundamental change in the way we think about crime and the way we think about why people commit crime and exactly what you said, which is, you know, no one is sitting and thinking, I'm not going to commit this crime because I'll get the death penalty. Like, I don't, I really don't think people think like that. People Commit crimes. You know, Brené Brown says, do I think murderers are doing the best they can? Yes, I do. But their best is dangerous and we have to deal with the consequences of that action. I feel like if we really shifted the conversation to when we talk about preventing crime to why people commit crimes instead of scaring them into not committing crimes would be so much more productive. Instead of saying, you know, we're just going to create this warehouse for who we've decided are less than human beings which I don't think serves anyone. And instead we said, okay, these are human beings and we have to think about how they got here and what, what roadblocks we could have put up or what diversions we could have put up instead of just saying, well, you're a monster and we're going to lock you away so you can't do it again. Like, I just don't think that's gotten us anywhere. It's just, and it's heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. And it's with regards to mandatory minimums in particular with drug problems. And this seems to be the biggest sort of, center point for bipartisan agreement is we're not doing a very good job of dealing with our drug problem. We've tried it. It didn't work. We need to try something else. Yeah. What we're doing is depriving people of liberty because of mistakes Mm -hmm. and addiction and addiction. We're not treating those mistakes or those addictions as what they are. Um, And, and instead we are, you know, you and I've both read this just kind of, mind-blowing piece by Ta-Nehisi Coates about mass incarceration. You know, we're creating factories of mm-hmm. people. Um, and I think that's where the title of Making a Murder is maybe the most poignant thing about it. Mm-hmm. Because our, our system is maybe churning out as much crime as it's preventing. And it's just scary. It's yeah. very scary. Well, and the part of that piece that I still, that kind of knocked me back, and I could, I kept thinking about it, and I still think about it. Is he talks that he talks about that roughly half of today's prison inmates are functionally illiterate. Okay, if half of today's prison inmates are functionally illiterate, then we have failed them way before they ever stepped inside the criminal justice system. I mean, I can't think of a more indication that something has gone wrong. And that's something I, th- I think the reason that speaks to me is because it's about it's not about 
who they are. It's about missed opportunities, right? It's not that they're evil monsters. It's that they don't have the most basic of skills that you're supposed to learn in our society in order to get ahead and to function and to not even just, you know, on a success standpoint, on a, you know, I think about the joy that reading brings to me and the, the idea of someone not having that skill for their entire lives. It's just, I can't even fathom it. And I can't, it's like I said, I just find the whole thing so heartbreaking and I but I think what he does a really good job of in talking in that article is talk is really pushing the discussion beyond mandatory minimums and drug problems and now he says what do we mean by violent crime and how should it be punished because if we it's not it's not just going to be we're not going to fix this problem by eliminating mandatory minimums and we're not even really going to address this problem by removing nonviolent drug offenders from the system we still have a lot of people in prison, even if we take those people out. And so we really need to think about what does it mean to be a violent criminal? How do we want to punish violent crime? We need to talk about the fact that most people age out of violent crime and we have prisons filled with 50 and 60 year olds that statistically are highly unlikely to commit another crime. Are we just, you know, do we want to spend our tax dollars because we've decided that when you do something, even the most heinous acts, that we are just going to throw you in a pit and pay for it for the rest of your life as punishment for that. And why? Because we think it prevents it? Because we kind of talked about that we don't think that we prevent that prevents anything. So really, what are we doing? What are we doing? And I don't, I think that's a, a much bigger conversation that our society has got to have. Well, the optimistic part of this is that some of these conversations are being had, right? Mm-hmm. And they're being had on a, I, I'm so relieved that people seem to see this as a bipartisan issue that that we don't have sides on this one it's hey i'll go farther than relieved i'll say thrilled i'm straight Mm -hmm. up thrilled it it's it's just important and and it does not now is the conversation as expansive as we want it to be no because i think and we probably should have budgeted sarah like five episodes on this because (laughs) you know we have a million thoughts but i mean i think our conclusions for the moment are as they often are Early education, right? Mm -hmm. Early um, understanding of people as people and uh, a really big look at the humanity of every person involved in the system at every level, what the system even is, what it's supposed to be. I mean, there's just a lot of work to do here. Well, and I'll also say, though, you know, I'm also a big fan of just forward movement. I argued that with healthcare, I argued that with gun control. Let's just do something. So let me be clear. I'm really happy to start with mandatory minimums. And I'm happy to start with things like they passed the legislation about eliminating the like $26 an hour phone fees for people mm-hmm. in did you see that yeah so i mean anything like that's great let's do all of those things let's just start and no matter how small it might seem i'm happy to still do it because we're going to chip away at this piece by piece and that's great and that's important i just think that in every surrounding each small step we take needs to be this larger discussion and we have to keep the pressure on because this is a state and federal issue. You mm-hmm. know, this doesn't get fixed in Congress. There, it, There is a whole lot happening at the state level that has to be uh, reckoned with as well. So as voters, I think we can't let this drop off our radar. Steps forward, not perfection, just progress, but uh, a continued focus and demand for that progress. Mm-hmm. We're going to take on something much lighter next in Heels.
So in the heels, we're talking about great movies we've seen recently. And while my movie was funny, I'm not really sure if it was lighter. I recently saw The Big Short, which you also saw, texted me and said it was perfection. Go see it immediately. Yes. So I did in the middle of a snowstorm and it was totally worth it. Um, That movie was mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. It's the best movie I've seen in years. It really... So it's a... um, It's based on... The book is also titled The Big Short, I believe, by, and I'm just blanked on his name, Michael, he wrote the baseball book too. Shoot, I can't remember his name. But it's about the financial crisis, and it follows the people, several investors who bet on the failing of the financial system and made a lot of money off the failing of the financial system and sort of how they figured out what was happening before anybody else and what that process looked like. And it's just a very... You know, I read a review that was like, these pieces should not work as well together as they do. This kind of like, they'll do a timeout and have celebrities explain one of the one of the financial theories to you. And then the, there's lots of jokes and there's lots of um, Ryan Gosling talking to the camera like Zach from Saved by the Bell. But <laughs> all these pieces together make for a very entertaining and funny movie about a very intense and complicated subject. I knew... Probably a little bit more than most because I used to teach my Introduction to Business Law class, the uh, documentary, and now I've blanked on that name too. Goodness gracious. Um, it won Best Documentary Film, and it was about the financial crisis, um, and it was really, really well done. So I had a, a little bit better handle to lean on the idea of these bonds and the CEOs and all these things. But I, I just think, you know, I wrote on Facebook that I wish people were waiting in line to see the big short, like they were waiting in line to see Star Wars because I feel like it is so important to our political discussions and to financial reforms and the idea that we bailed out these banks and there wasn't this sort of mass reform you saw after the great depression. And I just worry so much that we're back on track to create another situation like that. I had so many thoughts in the middle of this movie. One of them was how well they did um, make derivatives and the whole world of financial instruments digestible, right? Where they said like, no, this isn't magic. Don't let somebody tell you this is too complicated to understand. Here's what they mean. And I think more of that is how we prevent this from happening again. And I I share your concern that we haven't done that work as a society. Uh, Another thought that I kept having when I saw it was that it finally, I understood how this happened. Mm. You know, I, I think when I was kind of doing research on this, because I, I may have mentioned before, I, I did bankruptcy, corporate bankruptcy restructuring work um, as an associate in a, in a law firm during the financial crisis. And um, as I was doing that work, I always thought, like, how, how did no one raise their hand at a meeting and say, like, wait a second, y'all, this doesn't make sense. Uh, watching this, I think you get how it happened. And it's sort of that sense of, well, everybody has faith in the institutions and this became the game and who am I as a player to change yeah. it up? Right? right. Well, and you know, what's so interesting is that Nicholas and I went to, so when we moved to DC in 2004, we were looking to, we were going to buy a home, ended up not, thank God. But so we were looking around and we had this, um, real estate agent. Her name was Al Nieder, very unique name. We'll never forget her. And I'm telling you in 2004, she was, I remember her saying to us, all these people have, cause it, the, the, it was insane, you know, like, 
you had to act quickly and they were going up $20,000 in like two days and you had to bring cash to the table. Like it was just a crazy, crazy peak market. And she was saying things like, you know, all these people are buying this real estate at adjustable rates. And when they all come due, you're going to see a huge mess. Now, obviously she wasn't talking about the bond issue and the really what put the flame to the whole mess were these, you know, B and triple B and these terrible bonds being, you know, grouped together and sold like that, like they were dependable. But, you know, it wasn't, people weren't blind to it. Everybody understood, like, there were mortgages going to people who probably couldn't afford them. The They were going to adjust. And I guess everybody just like those guys said, like, well, we'll just adjust the, we'll do the adjustable rate again. You can refinance and it'll be fine. But, I mean, she was saying that in 2004 because I remember it. We purchased our home in 2006, and it was a joke between us at the time. I had just gotten out of law school, so I had the promise of a job, but not a job. I was not working yet when we got a loan to uh, – we actually built our house. And uh, we we laughed at the time about how the bank was willing to give us two, three times what we oh, thought yeah. we could afford. And, and I just kept saying, well, they don't love us. You know, they don't care if we can eat or go on a vacation ever or buy clothes, you know, but, mm-hmm. but it was, it was even more than they don't love us. It was, they don't care if we pay it or not. Cause they're going to sell it in a hot minute after yeah. we sign the papers, you know? Yep. So it, it was interesting. The last thought I had about the big short was how desperately financial institutions, uh, much like our political institutions, need more women represented. Oh, yeah, so true. It, you 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 do sit back and think like, what would this what would this be like if you had a different pervasive influence? Well, and I was reading about the book that there was a actually there was a female financial analyst who plays a very big role in the book, and so I don't know if the movie just decided to take on just the investor side of the story, but there was a, her name was Meredith, and she was a financial analyst who saw this coming and talked about it and played a pretty big role in the book, too. And it was interesting, it's not just a diverse perspective from with regards to gender, but I've read a lot about mutual funds um, after the financial crisis that were run by Muslims and according to Islamic principles. And so they could not invest in any kind of lending because that's, you know, against their religion. And so they were using these principles and did really well because they weren't invested in lending. So I thought that was really interesting too. We'll just say, uh, since we're talking about movies, we have to say something about Star Wars, which I think we've both seen as well. Have you seen Star Wars? Oh, yeah. Sarah? I've yeah, seen I mean, Star it, was, Wars. It, was, it was good, right? Like, I'm not a Star Wars um I mean, I think you're legally required to see it to stay in the country right now. So if you haven't seen it, they'll probably come for you. You better go see it soon. I, my favorite thing about Star Wars has been seeing Carrie Fisher's Good Morning America interview and, and all the press Carrie Fisher's been getting. I think she is. I think she rocks. But um, I did. I, I liked. Yeah, it was good. I liked Ray. She was great. I do like the Where's Ray hashtag. Apparently, there's not as many Ray toys as there are like Finn toys and um, uh, the other the bad guy. I can't remember his name. But that was the other thing. I also thought Adam Driver did a. I'm a big Adam Driver fan anyway from Girls, but I thought he was very strong and did really really well and acted that part, especially the scene at the end. I thought that was really great. I mean, movies like this come out and. They're going to make bazillions of dollars and people are going to have like all kinds of beefs with them, right? Because right. a franchise like this is just uh, the expectations are too high. But I, I thought it was good. I thought they did a good job. I don't know. I feel like these Star Wars people are, and, and I'm mainly talking about my husband, are not up for any criticism. He's probably going to edit this part out because he's the executive producer. He'll just be like, oh, no, we'll just edit all this discussion out. But man, you can't say anything about Star Wars. People get so defensive. Of course, that's how I am about Harry Potter. So I understand. Well, 
We will uh, sincerely thank him at this moment to try to keep keep in his good (laughs) graces. So thank you as always to Nicholas Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, for being our executive producer. Our intro, interstitial, and outro music is Fourth and Starlight Road Instrumental by Mended and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0. And we are very excited to have you listening. We will talk with you next time. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. 